Welcome back to No Gray Areas. We are in part two of our interview with Chris Hilkin. And if you missed last week's, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. Chris unpacks his story. It's an incredible story of grief and trauma. His wife committed suicide, leaving him with five kids, one of them a newborn. And so today we're going to continue this conversation about grief, how we walk through our own grief and how we can help others walk through their grief. Thanks so much for joining us on the No Gray Areas podcast. You said you've learned a lot about God through this. You know, we're both preachers, teachers. Yeah. We've both preached many times on grief, the theology of grief. Um, what is what have you learned in this journey that maybe is different than 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 what you used to teach, or maybe it was the same of what you taught, but it's it's deeper. I mean, what it, you know? It's, I I've gone through some difficult times, but not like this. Um. There's, there's something about someone who's walked through this kind of journey that you're walking through right now that I think we as listeners need to just stop and listen and go tell us about the theology of grief, not just from words you read on a page, but from what you've experienced. Yeah, I, I think C.S. Lewis writes it and he says, God whispers to us in our victory, but he screams at us in our pain. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest things that, that I've learned is, I, this is so weird, because I'm teaching at Hume Lake like two weeks before she passes away, and the the prompt of the the night, which is, it was an unusual thing to have for like a, a kid's, you know, a high schooler's summer camp, was suffering. How do we make sense of suffering? So I remember thinking mm -hmm. to myself, like, I'm, I'm preparing this thing, and I'm still in the middle of like her mental stuff, but we're really, we're going to Hume Lake, so we're thinking, do something normal. Like go back, we Hume Lake has been like a home for us and somewhere that we've always loved and has been like a second family to us. And so we're up there and so I'm preparing this message and the message's content was threefold. And so I basically, my I said, um, I, I start by saying like, what, what do you do if you're on fire? Everyone goes, stop, drop and roll. And I said, well, it's kind of like the same thing with grief and suffering. If you don't have a plan on what you're going to do when it happens, when it happens, you are going to lower your theology to match your pain. That's what we do. When someone experiences intense temptation or sin in their life or pain in their life, they're they're willing to bend God around the theology of their pain. So if you don't have a proper theology of God, and almost like a cannon or a measuring stick or a mold, then if you've got a, a proper mold of who God is, then when you suffer, you pour your suffering into that mold and it becomes God-shaped and you understand it. But if your emotions rule or if your paradigm rules, and you have a suffering-shaped box, you pour God into it, and he becomes that shape of your suffering. So that was my challenge to them, is like, if you haven't gone through it, you're going to go through it. And so I said, here's three, here's your stop, drop, and roll for suffering. God is good. Hmm. God is sovereign. And God is making me more like Jesus every day in the pain and the suffering, the valleys and the mountaintops all together. Hmm. And that was it. It was God is good. God is sovereign. God is making me more like Jesus. And I remember telling them, if that isn't foundational to what you understand about grief, when grief comes, if you don't bleed that truth, you'll bleed something else that's wrong. Mm. And and so I think for me, it's um, a First John chapter two. It's basically like a you know it, it's it's almost a dad writing to his son. The whole book of First John is mm -hmm. you know this mm -hmm. is this is how much I love you. This is how, what you mean to me. But First John two, uh, fifteen question mark. I think it's around there do not love the world or anything in the world. And it's just so funny that for me, when I look back on it, 
And it's not until I sit where I sit now and I go like, I loved the world. I loved the acclaim. I loved the possessions. I loved the materialism. I loved the marriage. I loved all those things. And none of those by themselves are wrong to enjoy. But when when God's talking to me, he said, you shouldn't love anything more than more than you love me. And I didn't get that. And I think now... You understood it cognitively. Like you... like. In your mind, you understood it, but you wouldn't even have recognized you. Yeah, no, that's really true. Get the depth of it. It's true for you, Pat. You know what I mean? Like that was how I was. It's, that, don't love the world, you. Mm. Who am I teaching to? Don't love the. You don't love the world. And then I would have examined him, like I don't. You know, like I'm a pastor. Like I, I teach the word of God. Like I'm passionate about what He does. Like for sure, I love my family, but I don't love it more than Jesus. I love my comfort, but I don't love it more than Jesus. And I've watched kind of the systematic restoration of my heart since she died of realizing I loved the world. Like I watch my heart cry Maranatha like every day, like God come back. Mm -hmm. And death for the first time in my life has almost looked like a welcomed butler to bring me to the feet of Jesus rather than the, oh man, you know, I gotta, I gotta get all this junk done before I meet that. And for me, it's now like, because this world is so pointless and our time here is so short, I'm going to do whatever I can do because I've got a divine appointment with Jesus coming up and I, I want to make sure I bring as many people with me as, as possible. You see, it's, it, it's just a, it's a short, it's a small fundamental change, but it makes all the difference internally. So I don't, I don't want to move on because what you just said I think is so good because I think a lot of listeners, myself and, and included here, I think that way a lot of times, you know, I'm like, man, I, I don't have a lot of time on this. I'm going to try to get, I got to get all this stuff done. I got to get traveling done. I got to go see the places I want to see. I don't want to waste my time with, you know, my kids. I want to, I want to really have time with the kids and the grandkids. That's kind of the mindset. And you're saying it's not all wrong, but there was a, the, the grief shifted this slightly to what? Maybe for the first time in my life, I love God more than I love my wife. I'm, I think I'm learning how to love God more than I love my family. And I wouldn't have understood the the idols of my heart before this. I didn't get that, but I think it's true. Hmm. And 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 so what you're saying is so appropriate. I gotta get. I want to go and see this, and I want to go and see that. I dude, I just don't care about it. Like oh, Rome, it can stay. I don't care. You, I don't care if I ever see Rome. I don't get any of that stuff. Like there's that the the strange superpower of deep grief is perspective. The strange thing that you talk to anyone that's gone through something like this is they just have this weird sense of that junk doesn't matter to me anymore. And do you think we can get there without grief? I don't know. I, w I would hope in God's loving kindness and gentleness that if there was a way to get me there without what I went through. And again, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not leaping into this world of like, this is what God came and did this to me to do this. But I think while God doesn't author pain, he doesn't author sin. He also refuses to waste it. He refuses to waste our pain. And I, th I feel like a bullhorn has I been. I hope our listeners will just take, like maybe hit pause and rewind a little bit and listen to what you just said again and spend the next couple of weeks processing. Yeah. It. That's really deep what you just said. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, but that, again, that's it's stuff you wrestle with. When you go through this, you 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 don't think about anything else. Like all you're you're sitting with the whole time is, God, how could you? And then I remember thinking, I but I know that you're good. So my real question is, how are you good in the midst of this? Not whether or not you're good, but it's how are you good? And I started seeing everything through this lens of. This is a thought that I that I've had that's kind of been cemented in my soul since this happened. Is 
I prayed so fervently. I fasted and I, you know, I felt like David in the Old Testament when his son was going to die, like, God, do something, intervene. Like, this can be our story. Our story can be a miracle. Our story can be the changing of this. It can be, my wife can be an advocate for mental health in the church. Like, she can do all these things. And if God is good, then he would answer all the prayers that I answer the way that I would if I knew what he knew. In other words, if I was omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, if I knew what God knew and I saw what God saw and I loved how God loved and I had the perspective that he had, there's not a prayer that crosses us into his desk that I would answer differently than he answers. And that's and you're saying that's believing and understanding the goodness of God. That's what it would be. Yeah. That's what it is. It's it's believing, it's believing the truth. It's Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. My ways are not your ways, nor are my thoughts your thoughts. As your ways are higher than mine, uh, as as far as the heavens are above the earth, your your ways are higher than mine, declares the Lord. There's no one believes that. Mm-hmm. I still don't really believe that. Because if God does something that I don't agree with, mm-hmm. I just see him as a supernatural version of me who thinks like me and talks like me and acts like me and responds to prayers the way that I would. I really did wrestle with the fact that God is saying no when I fervently believe he doesn't have a good reason to. Mm. But what I was really saying is, I don't see how this is better. I don't see how this brings you more glory. I don't see how this is better for your kingdom. I don't see, and there's a big difference between God, you're wrong, and God, I don't understand. And I think that's kind of where this has brought me is like, but I'm so much more comfortable in the tension of not getting who God is and following him fervently and, and trusting After going his loving this, kindness. Yeah. That I go, dark I, night of the soul, yeah. you're better at, yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. In the unknown and just kind of, Signing your name to the bottom of a contract and passing it across the desk to Jesus. Like, whatever you want to do with the rest of my life, you can have it. You want me to get married? I'll get married. You want me to stay single? I'll stay single. How do you want me to raise these kids? What do you want me to move to? What do you want me to do? I'll do whatever you want to do. Because I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to dictate this anymore. I just want you to be in charge of it all. And that never would have been the case before. Yeah. You know, Chris, what you're saying reminds me of a friend of mine who had, had sat at the bed of two grandchildren that died of cancer at oh a very young age, like two years old and five or six years old. And, no way. But, he, but he, he always said to me after going through that, he goes, I think the skeleton that all of our theology needs to hang on is the goodness of God. If you take away the goodness of God, everything else crumbles. 100%. Which is why I think our enemy, what does he question right away? Is he tries to get us to question the goodness of God. I think it's his, his main tactic with us as young people. You, you, you're passionate about young people. I'm passionate about young people, but that's what he does. Anybody that grows up in the church, um, when we start going through those teenage years, we start questioning, you know, is he really good? Does he really want my best? But what you're saying is there's never been a time in your life where you had to confront that as much as when you're going through grief. Yeah, so my, my best friend died in Afghanistan, like I said, a few years back. And I struggle with the goodness of God. Then my wife died, and I don't struggle with it anymore. Isn't that weird? Yeah. I mean, so weird that I didn't even know what question to ask you. I'm like, what's what's the difference? So what do you you think the difference is? I think the difference is I still had a leg to stand on. I still had my own system of hope. I had my own—in pain, we all do different things. I'm an intellectualizer. And once it makes sense to me, like if someone says something rude to me, once I get why they did it or I get what they're going through, I'm like, whatever. I can't do it with this. You can't make sense of this. I can't make sense of it. And so instead of propping myself up and and sitting on the last embers of my own understanding and my own way of doing things and my whole, like even like raising kids, like I, I, if you came to my house on that day of, and I had an amazing community that showed up the day that, that we found out that she passed away. 
I had one concern. How are my kids going to be? And there was a leveling of everything that took place where you just go, you you just throw yourself headlong into Jesus. And it's it's because that's all I had. And that's that's all I have. Like when Tito died, I, 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 I went to Paige and I was like, well, what do we do? And we're walking through this and I had the church and I had all this other stuff. And here it was like, I just sat there alone. Mm-hmm. And my number one, you want to know who I want to process Paige's death with most? Paige. Paige. Yeah. And she's gone. And that's what I think people don't understand too. Like, and not, not to like bring in comparative grief, but when you lose your spouse and she was also your best friend, you, the number one person that you want to talk about your wife's death with is your wife. Mm-hmm. And that's gone too. And so you just go, what do I do now? And that's, it was, it was kind of like as my last finger was pulled off of what I was gripping of my past and of my future and of what I wanted for my life as I kind of fell into the lap of God for the first time wholeheartedly and um, totally submissively and without reservation. And that's when I experienced his goodness. And I went, oh, so you're not just good when I give you my foot and you grab that while I'm grabbing my own life and dealing with my own stuff. Right? I, th- I think I'm a pretty high capacity person, pretty intelligent, so I could deal with stuff. I couldn't deal with it, man. I just, mm. couldn't, I just can't deal with this. Mm. And so it was like, I either throw myself at Jesus, he's my only hope, or I'm going to die too. And when I did that, I just experienced an overwhelming love that in years of teaching Jesus, I've never understood, never even fathomed. So if I may, I want to ask you a question that's, that um, I'm asking to be really transparent. Yeah. Um, do you ever struggle with the goodness of God? Was there ever in the middle of the night you wake up at 2 a.m. and you're in the darkest moment of this whole grief process where you question that or? Gentleness, yes. Goodness, no. I still struggle with God's gentleness, right? Hmm. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the fruit of the Spirit is supposed to be a manifestation of the character of God. Mm-hmm. That'll be a question I ask when I get there, and it's a question I still ask him. Tell me how this is gentle. Tell me how you take a guy who's got five kids in the middle of everything going on, who's following you, who's preaching and teaching, and all. And how do you it just it, it just gratuitously like it's it's my wife's mental health, it's my son's disease, it's Brady's eyes, it's Finley's asthma, it's Peyton's croup attack. You just like walk me through your gentleness again. Mm-hmm. But when you get the skeleton of God's goodness, you go, this is something I'm not going to get till I get there. And I'm okay with that. But I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, sitting in my son's room, it was, it was almost supernatural just sitting there. And um, there's this song that I just started listening to that was so powerful for me. And the chorus says, I throw all my cares before you. My doubts and fears don't scare you because you're bigger than I thought you were. And I literally, I have my phone and I got like a little, you know, uh, amplification device in the corner. And so I was like, Siri, play worship dance party. That's a playlist my kids and I made for like worship music. And the first song is like, you're bigger than I thought. And it's like, that's my struggle right in that moment. It's like, are you actually bigger than I thought? Or are you as big as I thought? Because if you're bigger than it, then I, I'm okay with throwing myself on you. The weight of this situation, the cares, my future, my anxieties, my fear. I was, dude, I was so scared. Mm-hmm. Like that I'm going to be the one that screws up my kids. You know, at least I have that buffer of my wife who is amazing and powerful. And then she practices like just such an amazing grace and femininity to who she is. And now I'm just this moron and I got to raise these kids. Like, just don't let me blow this. And I just, that's kind of my prayer is 
when, God, don't when be as big that? as that. When, when were you in that room? I called. I talked to my kids the day that she died. I called her dad. It's just this dude that I handed her, I, that he, I, he handed her off to me. You know, and then I got to look at him and like, well, I got to call him and tell him like I didn't do a good job, you know. Um, and then I got to call my brother and my other brother. And then, you know, I'm just trying to call my community and I'm doing it kind of out of desperation. And you're, you're trying not to say like, come here, you know, I need you. But that's what you're telling them. Yeah, you know, like mm-hmm. for each of I just, I remember... You know, I remember like their response. I remember what they said. I remember, and I just remember thinking to myself, like, I'm not going to ask you to come here. In fact, I'm probably going to tell you not to, but I really need you to come here. And so I remember even one of my buddies, Jake, he called, he's like, do you want us to come over? I'm like, no. And then he called back. He's like, I'm on my way. You know, and it's like, um, that's just what I needed more than anything as I needed the church to be the church and, and to watch that community surround me. And they did. And Larry Osborne, the senior pastor at North Coast, like came there. Jay Folk, like that. These guys that, you know, they're amazing men of faith, and they were there in twenty mm-hmm. and thirty minutes and just sat with me and let me cry about stuff. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, gentleness, That's not goodness. Such an, such an interesting difference. But I can, I can understand. I can understand a little bit what you what you mean by that. You think about doctors like through... bedside manner, you know, like yeah, what like a doctor's bedside manner, you know, like the difference between goodness and gentleness yeah. is like you can be a everyone's had that doctor that's like they're the best in the business, but they're kind of jerk. Yeah, and you're like, man, you're you're good, you're good, and you do the right thing, you make the right choice, could and you're you very ethical. Little... Yeah, do you need to stab me like that? Yeah. Like, could you have warned me? Could you have asked me how I'm doing before you like before you proctologize myself? Like, yeah. Can we have some conversation? And that's, I think that's probably the thing that if I'm in a wrestling match with God right now, that's my wrestling match yeah. is walk me through your gentleness because I'm having trouble with it. Yeah. But I, I love it. Someone told me like, if you're wrestling with God, you're still in his arms. Hmm. That's very different than walking away. Mm-hmm. And I love that Jacob Israel story in the Old Testament. It's like, I'll, that's what the word Israel means, means to wrestle with God. It's like, I'm wrestling with him a lot, but I also found a deep comfort and I'm in his arms and I'm good with that. I think any of us that have gone through grief, which really anybody who's lived life has gone through grief, like you said, we don't want to compare grief, but um, uh, I think a lot of us would mm-hmm. probably agree, maybe not at the level that you're going through, but grief does do some things that there's no other time in our can. You quoted C.S. Lewis, we're saying he whispers to us, but it's in our grief where he, he, he yells to us. Some of my grief I've gone through in the last few years, I feel like he pried my fingers off of a, a, a system of belief that I had no idea I actually yeah. believed. I preached against it for most of my life. If you live a good life, you should get a good life. I always said, that's not in the Bible. But it wasn't until I went through grief that I realized, I actually believe that. I was believing that. I thought if I did all these good things, mm-hmm. that I should get a pretty good life. And then when things didn't work out like I thought they should work out, you know, like you're saying, but I've never heard it put the way you did, though, Chris. I think that's so good. I think that's going to be so good for the listeners to talk about the gentleness of God is something that we wrestle with, isn't it, in our grief? You have, at least. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you a, a, some questions that can really help us. Okay. All, all of us as listeners, we're, we're going to walk through someone who's going through grief, all of us. Some of us are doing it right now. What have you learned in the last eight months, year, um, about how what what to do and not to do as you're walking with someone who's 
in that dark night of the soul. At the risk of exposing too much, or I'm, I'm going to answer that question as honestly as I possibly can, and um, I would say understand for the person who, like my life feels like BCAD on that morning at 10 o'clock when I got that phone call. Mm-hmm. There, I have two different lives that I lived. And if you, the only the time you really experience that in your life is a couple times, like your the birth of your kid, and marriage, where you mm-hmm. you're, you have a life before and then you have a life afterwards. And in both of those situations, the people who are around you at that moment are your friends and your family, and those who aren't are not. And it's just it's just kind of that simple. And um, so one of the things I would say is the power of presence is so phenomenally important that if you haven't been through grief, you don't get, there's almost a running tally in almost anyone's mind that I've gotten to talk with. And there's a good group of like uh, Christian widowed guys that I've been able to communicate with. And they can tell you everyone who has reached out, everyone who was there and everyone who hasn't. Almost like it's burned in your memory. Like think about your wedding day. If your grandma didn't show up to your wedding, but she was in town, you would, there'd be, there'd be no, there's no, And I've had people come up to me since and like, hey, man, I was a bad friend for you at that time. Like, I didn't know what to say. So I just kind of stayed away. I know it's been like six months, but, you know, like, I I just want to apologize for being a bad friend. And I and and again, I I didn't mean to be rude, but I just kind of said, like, no, it's it's that burden isn't on you because you're not my friend. If you're not there, then what in the world would you ever be there for that I would really need you for? That is so important for us to hear now, right? Because we, we, especially with like the social media, someone will say like, I got a thousand friends on Facebook. No, you don't. Right. No, you don't. Your friends are the ones that'll show up at 2 a.m. when all hell is broke loose. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Deep grief. You really figure that out. hundred percent. And you, we have this natural assumption that I don't want to be there and say something stupid. Or I, I don't want to. I don't want to impose. Or I don't want to do any of those other things. And from what I found, and in the d- different gr- grief communities that I found my, find myself in, we've got like a weird club that we have going on, right? But that that's such a foreign concept of like, oh no, I understand why you weren't there because I yeah for sure I I wouldn't want you to say something stupid. It's the opposite. It's like sit there, just shut up, don't mm-hmm. say anything. Mm-hmm. I remember who was. I can give you. I can go around and tell you exactly who was there. And I can't tell you anything that they said because most of them didn't say anything. And that's what someone in grief needs. Yeah. I just want to know that you're there with me and I'm going to talk and your best, the best that you can possibly say is, I can't imagine. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. I can't imagine. Mm-hmm. You talk about some do's and don'ts. I'll Maybe I can give way to that one, which the, the do is be, be present mm-hmm. and a don't is don't write this text message. Hey, so sorry for what you're going through. Reach out if you need anything. No one reaches out. Mm-hmm. If someone's in deep grief, they're in depression. They're struggling with anxiety. They're having a hard time getting out of bed. They don't have the wherewithal to get up and then ask you to work on their behalf. They're not going to do it. The best thing that I think you can do if you're if you have this position in their life is Give them full permission to send you away, but show up, you know. Um, hey, just want to let you know, there's, um, you've got Chipotle outside your door right now. Love you so much. Here for you. Because if I really want to stay home and not eat, I'm not going to text you and go, hey, I'm ready to call in that thing that you asked me for. It just feels so abnormal. Mm-hmm. And if you've got any EQ at all, you're not going to do it. And But I think that's everyone's stamp of I did it is once they say the phrase, if you need anything, let me know. 
And then they point back to it and they go, well, but I told you if you need anything, let me know. And it's like, dude, yeah. <laughs> do you know how many times I've heard that in the last? Yeah. And I, it doesn't mean anything to me because if, I mean, I, I totally understand that, but I'm not going to ask you that. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to reach out to you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to know how. I'm not healthy enough to have a good conversation with you right now about mm-hmm. what I need from you. And so I, I, I've got one buddy, Jake, Jake and Nat, who, you know, we're one of our best friend couples, um, he would just show up and he would bring food and he would look at me and he would go, I, I need you to be honest with me. Do you want me to leave right now? And we were close enough that I was able a couple nights to go, you know what? Yeah. I'll just thank you so much for dinner. And, um, yeah, come back over in a couple of days and he'd go, you got it. And people would just, just be there. And sometimes they would just park. We've got a three acre property. They would just park on the property and go, Hey, I'm in your driveway. It's nine o'clock at night. It's your first night without Paige and no one else is here in the house. I'm in your driveway if you need me. If not, I'll sleep in my car and I'm listening to some worship music. Do not come outside unless you want to talk. And if you do, I'm here for you. And it, it was moments like that where you went, oh, I can actually use that because you're right there and you're present. And it's, I'm not asking much of you. And when you feel so low and you're in suffering, you don't think very highly of yourself. And so you don't think that people are being genuine. You go, oh, you're just saying this because this is par for the course. And some people are just saying it because it's par for the course. And you watch the difference between people who do it and those who say, let me sitting, know if you need it. Yeah. Someone who's sitting in your driveway saying, I'll sleep out here and I don't expect you to come out. They're not They're not doing that just because they're supposed to. For sure. Yeah. And yeah. so you get that the, the difference is becomes starkly clear yeah. between the two of those things. And So you're really saying show up and and if you have that position in their life, give them the permission to say... I don't need you now. You can go, um, whatever. But if they've showing got a, up if is they've a big got part. an intense, if they've got a, a close confidant, you can use them as a sounding board, right? So if if someone loses a kid, and the wife's sister is the, she's got a she's got a great pulse on everything, then use them, and go. Hey, I'm gonna come bring food over. Do I drop it off, or do you want me to stay for any time? Do you? And she can get a read on it. Then they can do that kind of stuff with me because I didn't have page there it was a direct thing and jake kind of instigated that with everyone he i would tell him and then he would tell everyone else here's what we need to do and they would come in and one day i woke up and they were just cleaning up all the trash on the property and they were just they were just doing things that were like we just are going to demonstrate to you that we're not thinking about other things right now we're thinking about you and we're here for you our lives aren't going on because your life isn't going on and for a, a couple week time, it, that was it was so powerful for me to watch them pause their lives mm. with me. It was almost like sitting shiva, right back in the Jewish mm-hmm. custom. Yeah. You, everyone who's close, you just sit for seven days. That's what I was just thinking. Yep. And it's it's the same thing. It's like my life stops because your life stops, and because we worship busyness and the, the idolatry of work, we don't want to do that. But for me, I'll never forget people who paused their lives and said, "I'm just going to sit with you. That's what you need right now." Mm. And that's spoken so strongly to me. Yeah. Um, I would say one more thing, which is the don'ts. I, I, I would make a, I, I've, I did this right after it happened. I made a four part. What's the best thing to say to someone in grief? And what's the worst thing to say to someone in grief? The best thing you can say is the right thing at the right time. Okay. The second best thing is to um, say nothing but be present. The third is to say something stupid. The fourth is to not be present and not say anything. And I think people are so concerned they're going to say something stupid. They don't say anything, but that's not that. I would rather you make an attempt and me go, 
oh man, that was dumb, than to be silent. Silence mm. is deafening to the, the person who's grieving. It's mm. loud mm. and it's, it's irreconcilable with your position because you just go, how do you not communicate with me at a point mm. like this? How do you not show some level of solidarity or mm. whatever? And you watch people that you've had beef with lay it down and walk towards you and be there for you. And, and what I've noticed is people who have experienced grief are the best grievers with people because mm -hmm. they get it. Mm -hmm. So if you can't, you got to paint my numbers. And that's some painting by numbers that I think can be helpful. Don't never compare grief ever. Mm -hmm. I, that's someone was like, Oh, you, you should talk to my friend. He lost his wife and he had three kids. And so I think, you know, you would really get along and everything. And, um, it's funny because when we talked, we neither of us said, I know what you're going through because you just don't. Like, think about the d dynamics of a marriage. Yeah. If, you know, if you lose Charmin and I lose Paige and we do it on the same day, we both yep. have five kids, do you think it's going to be the same? Yep. No. Yeah. Because I might have lo lost my travel buddy and you might go, oh, she was a great wife, but we probably didn't travel so much. There's so many dynamics involved yeah. in that yeah. that, you know, if you lose twin daughters, you grieve them differently because your relationship with them is so fundamentally different. And, I would get people going like, hey, my basketball coach died last year, so I, I know what you're going through. It's like, that's the, that is the most insulting thing. Ever I know what you're going through. Don't. Yeah. yeah. I've had people who have gone through, quote unquote, less, you know, like their great grandma died and they come up to me and they're like, what you said spoke to me so much and my great grandma just passed away and I'll go, I'm so sorry. I have no, I can't imagine what you're going through. That must be so painful. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry for that pain in your heart. I'm, what am I going to say? You're, oh, your great-grandma died. How old was yeah. she? 95? My yeah. wife was 28. I have five kids. I'm a single dad of five. I homeschool them too. Like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So comparative grief is is the is the robber of all joy in those situations too. Yeah. You know, when you were giving those four things, the, the, the first one, the number one, was what? Saying the right thing at the right time. Yeah. Right? Knowing exactly what to say, when to say it, and, and when not to. And that's what scares people, I think, when yeah. they see someone going through grief because they're like... I don't know if this is the right time. I don't know if this is the right thing to say. But I, I, I think that's where, too, the crushing. I remember hearing someone say, beware the person who's walking with no limp. You can tell really quickly when you're sitting down with someone who's gone through a crushing. Maybe different than your crushing. Sure. But you can tell they've been crushed in yeah. life and they understand grief. And, and, and so sometimes what they're saying or how they're reacting to it you're going, this person at some point has experienced some 100%. pain. 100%. Yeah, you can tell. So, so Chris, unpack for us now, because all of us, if we live very much more life, are going to go through some kind of crushing, right? We just, if we live years, some of us maybe decades, we're going to go through some difficult times. So give us some do's and don'ts on how we walk through our own grief and what you've experienced and learned. Um, I would say learn how to articulate it and do so often when you're going through grief. Sad is a ripe word. It makes a lot of sense. I'm sad, but it's also more of a catch-all. And what I've found is the more, the more I can identify what I'm actually feeling in every moment helps me grieve it better and helps me um, articulate to people around me. And then, it, and then by nature, they're able to assist better in it. So, um, so when someone asks me how you're doing today, I don't, I don't go, I'm sad. Well, I mean, to be honest, I'm always sad, right? Like. For the past eight months, I've been sad constantly. And again, the cloud can get a little bit smaller and a little bit bigger mm -hmm. depending on what you're going through, but like it's just constant sadness. And so for me, there's to articulate like um, on Easter, Easter was a few days ago and I'm walking around church and I'm watching families intact and I'm crying because I'm just watching 
their pastel dresses and the little girls and they're emulating their moms and knowing that's not part of my future at this point. Um, at least Paige. Uh, and so I articulated with my family that day, like today I really missed the future I was going to have with Paige. Mm. Um, they're able to speak into that so much more than I'm generally sad. And so I, I think when you're walking through grief, do your best to pinpoint what your emotion is at any moment. And you might be feeling 18 things, but the more the more I've been able to kind of characterize those things, the more it's helped me internally to go. Because sometimes I, I grieve the person of Paige. Like she was funny. She was she has idiosyncrasies and she's goofy and she's powerful. And she always, like she, she, she was, she just made me feel alive. But some days I'm sad about Paige, but I'm not sad about that part of it. I'm sad because of what she's missing out on. I'm sad because I'm watching Brady hit a home run and I look over and she's not there. That's a very different grief than I just miss my buddy. I miss my friend. I miss my lover. I miss you here. And then there's a different grief where you miss your future. You think about your kid getting married. You think about their prom. You think about how much they're going to look like her and how they're going to do a side-by-side -side when they get older and the, the day where Peyton passes her up in height and you grieve the future that you were going to have. And, and they can be really different from each other. And um, so I think to articulate to a community around you what's going on. And the other thing I would say, and I think just by nature we backed into this, which is whether it's a, a, a small group or a church community, whatever it is, you might not think, you might think I'm too busy for this right now. I don't have time for this. I'm not, you know, this is, or I don't love it. It's not super comfortable, but with anything, when you invest in it, you also get to reap the benefits of it later on. And just week after week, we hosted life group at our house. So even when we wanted to cancel, we wouldn't want, we don't want to go that week. They would keep showing up. And so it developed such a deep bond that when this happened, we had invested so much into that friendship bank account, into that community bank account, that then we were able to write a big check and go, we need you right now. And then they were there for us. Mm -hmm. And I know different parts of our lives where we didn't prioritize that, that this didn't happen during those seasons. And I don't know what I would have done. Mm. And so for, for me, it, it, don't worry about it being enjoyable or really fun every week or, or, and, and don't uh, avoid the awkwardness of starting a new faith community or, or starting a new group. Because if you're consistent with it, you will find after time, that's who I looked around and was surrounded by on the day where everything happened. So move towards community before you get into grief. Mm -hmm. um, for those of you who, ha who haven't been in it before, because if there's one promise Jesus makes, it's in this world, you will. Yeah. You will have trouble. Yeah. So Yeah, it's not if, it's when. Right. It's not so there's a couple when. of those things for people who are going through it. You know, Chris, hearing your story, one of the things that I'm hearing too is that you laid, you laid foundations that maybe you didn't even realize you were laying, you know, uh, your belief in the goodness of God. Like you're saying, you didn't, you didn't really know the depths of that and they've been challenged. Um, the gentleness of God, the, your, your theology, your system of beliefs, your, your community, your mm -hmm. faith community. But there was these foundations that you had been laying down for a long time that have, are, are now reaping hundredfold or a thousandfold, right? Of what you could probably imagine. Yeah. Well, Chris, I just thank you for your transparency and your honesty. And I think what I'd like to ask the audience to do right now is to maybe just pause and that a lot of them are in a position to be the person that's going to show up in your driveway. In fact, that might freak you out if you had 100 <laughs> cars in your driveway tomorrow. But what they can do is maybe pause and just say a prayer for you and your yeah. kids because you still have a uh, an intense journey ahead of you. Yeah. yeah, and with your children. And like you talked about all the unknowns of your future. But I just want to say thank you 
uh, for sharing and being willing to be transparent. I, I know for me, um, and I know a lot of the listeners, we're going to go through some difficult times if we live many more years. And I have no doubt that there's some things that you're sharing through your journey right now that are going to have a huge impact on us. So thank you. Thanks, Pat. Appreciate it. Thanks. We recognize that part one and part two of this interview with Chris Hilkin has been really, really heavy. And we want to tell you again that if you're struggling with suicide or you have a family member or friend who's maybe struggling with it, we have the suicide prevention number in our description. And we would encourage you to reach out to them. Our team at No Gray Areas are here for you. Thanks so much for listening.